0: the Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode one sixty. <laughs> As a celebration of self-delusion, in an effort to better understand the human condition, we talk a lot about psychology on this program. The psychology of reasoning, the psychology of decision-making, the psychology of judgment and introspection and justification, and so on. I like to tell people that You Are Not So Smart is about two ideas. One, you are unaware of how unaware you are, and two, you are the unreliable narrator in the story of your own life. And these ideas are both concerned with the fact that we don't often know the true motivations, the true sources of our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. But we are compelled to create narratives and to explain ourselves to ourselves and others as if we do know those things. And we really believe that we do know those things most of the time. And so when we spin these narratives, whether or not they're true, they become the stories of our lives. And those stories tell us who we are. Usually when we turn to psychology to better understand all this, we go to the lab, to scientists, people who are running experiments and exploring and uncovering and creating data and evidence for what's really going on. But for many people, maybe most people, psychology is something they associate with what happens in a comfortable office with couches and plants and nice wall clocks. Now, not everyone goes to see a therapist. The majority of people don't. But almost half of American adults have seen a therapist at some point in their lives, 42%. And right now, about 13% of people are seeing a therapist somewhere in the United States which amounts to 27 million people. And among those, 6 million are millennials, 4 million are Generation Xers, and 2 million are boomers. So the stigma is changing, but there is still a stigma around therapy, around going to see someone about your problems, the things about yourself that you would like to change.
1: Think that when something feels wrong with our body, something feels off with our body, like you're having chest pain, you will probably go to a cardiologist before you have a massive heart attack. You'll probably get it checked out. But if something feels off emotionally, often what people do is they say, Well, yeah, kind of depressed or anxious or not really functioning that well, or I'm having this problem in this relationship and it's getting kind of bad, but you know, I have a roof over my head and food on the table. So, you know, I'll just let it go, stiff upper lip. But what happens is then they don't end up getting help until they're experiencing the equivalent of an emotional heart attack. And that's often when people land in therapy. But at that point, you've suffered unnecessarily, first of all, for longer than you needed to. And it's also harder to treat once it's gotten that bad.
0: That is therapist and author Lori Gottlieb.
1: My name is Lori Gottlieb, and I am a psychotherapist and the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone.
0: Yes, she's written a book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and the subtitle is A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed, and it's a very good book. Intimate and human and gut-wrenching and inspiring and full of science and drama and written with an honesty and a candor that you just really rarely find in books like this. In a very self-reflective period, to say the least, I listened to half of this book on a road trip and then the rest of it while I built a bookshelf. And it really helped me through some tough stuff. It's a true story about Gottlieb's decision as a therapist to go see a therapist herself after a very traumatic life event sent her reeling. And it's also an autobiography telling the story of how she became a therapist and what she learned about herself in therapy later in life after she had a thriving practice of her own. And it's also the arc of change of five different people, change that five people experience while in therapy. So it's a big book. It's 58 chapters long. And you get an intimate look into the lives of these five patients as they get what they need from therapy. One is uh, John, a belligerent asshole who wants to be a better husband and father, Julie, a woman trying to come to terms with a terminal illness. Charlotte, a 20-something with alcohol and relationship issues who's trying to define herself. Rita, a woman close to 70 with depression, who is dealing with a lifetime of regret concerning her children. And Lori, the author, who is blindsided by an awful revelation from the man she expected to marry, which leads to a breakup that scrambles her plans and her sense of self alters her feelings of security, and makes her fixate on mortality and loneliness and relationships and much more. It's a great book, and that's why it's been on the bestseller list for so long, and that's why it's going to be a television show on ABC starring Eva Longoria. But for me, the most interesting part of the book is when Gottlieb explains the trans-theoretical model of change, a much-researched scientific foundation used by therapists that explains how people go about realizing they want to change their own lives, change their behavior or their thought patterns. And it's also a guide for how to help people do that. So I talked to her about this, the trans-theoretical model, and we'll get into that in a minute. But first, I wanted to share with you what Gottlieb had to say about some of the misconceptions people tend to have about therapy and therapists. Because more than anything else, Her book is about pulling back the curtain and showing what therapy really is.
1: I think a lot of the reason people don't go to therapy is that we value our physical health differently from our emotional health, even though our emotional health, um, you know, how emotionally healthy we are will determine the quality of our lives and the quality of the lives of the people who live with us, (laughs) too. I, I think that there are these misconceptions about what people would be signing up for. And part of it is. They think that well, you're going to go to therapy. You're going to talk about your childhood ad nauseum, and you're never going to leave. And and that's just not at all what the experience is like. The experience mm. is about hold, having a mirror held up to you, so you can see your reflection in a different way. You can look at parts of yourself that you might not be aware of, and that are holding you back, that are limiting you, that are um, you know keeping you stuck in some way.
0: Yeah, I feel like I noticed, I uh, felt that emerge as the book went forward, that it's, it's you know, people stuck in loops and f- for whatever, or in ruts or in loops that are that they don't want to be in. Um, I even, I remember I was listening to a portion of the book uh, while I was taking a shower and I have a little shower notepad because uh, <laughs> that's where ideas happen a lot. Uh, and uh, it's a waterproof notepad. It's the best. I have like 10 of them in a drawer because uh, when I use one up, I want to, I want to put another one up as soon as I lose as I get rid of one. Um, now that
1: I know about this, you know that I'm going to be ordering this the second we it's, get up. It's the, a, it's
0: the best. It's on Amazon. It's 12 bucks. It's a waterproof notepad and pen pencil. I love it. Uh, I can't tell you how many, I have a stack of notes, right? I have written on this flight to health, uh, <laughs> pre-contemplation, <laughs> um, living death, uh, uh, you know, and there's all these notes that I was listening, I was listening to it when I was, in the shower and one of these notes is, um, it's, you were talking about one of your patients who you, um, talk about a lot in the book. You have several patients that you, uh, detail the arcs of their therapy in the book. And one of them, one of the more difficult ones, John, um, you said this line in one of his chapters, it's not, um, it's not them paraphrasing. It's not breaking down. It's breaking open. Uh, if you could just talk about that line just for a second, it really, I think I spent an entire day thinking about that sentence. Um, and because th- you said you were the way you say it in the book is you were helping him not to break down, but to, you were telling him it wasn't breaking down. It was breaking open.
1: John was this this very abrasive person who came to see me, who mm-hmm. at, at first was very unlikable in so many ways. And, and I, I purposely present all of the patients the way that they came to me. And I present myself the way that I came to my therapist, which is that when people first come to therapy, you know, they're not at their best (laughs) Um, (laughs) and they have work to do. Right. Um, and so, um, and so with John, you know, he was insulting to me. He was, um, thought he was smarter than everybody else. Everybody else was an idiot in his mind. Um, and, um, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't so put off by his behavior because I knew that the ways that we act in the world serve to protect us. So his thing was he had to keep everybody at bay. He was highly successful in his professional life. Um, he was married with a couple of kids and, um, having some problems there, but nothing that he thought would, you know, kind of blow up. Um, and there was something going on underneath and I didn't know what it was because for him to act in the kind of extreme ways that he did, um, were going, I knew would be a form of self-protection for him. Mm-hmm. So, um, eventually when we get to, and I don't want to give it away here, but when we get to sort of, you know, what was really going on with him, which completely came out of left field for me, I did not see it coming at all. And I think that's what happens for the reader too, that I don't think the reader sees it coming either. Um, And yet I present all of the clues. You know, I think each patient is almost like a mystery. And when you write it in retrospect, after having lived it, um, you know, I put all the clues in there that I just didn't see. And I wonder if the reader sees them. But I don't think the reader sees them either. Like, we don't we don't really see it until until we find out what what really happened to him. And um, and so, you know, he at, at a certain point, he's the kind of guy who would never cry, who would never be vulnerable, who would never. Um, let himself be seen. Mm-hmm. And at one point he does um, finally. And um, he says, you know, I, I didn't come here to to break down. This isn't why I came to therapy He's like really mad that he's sort of, you know, doing this in front of me. And I said to him, you're not you're not breaking down, you're breaking open. Because he had been so constrained, he'd been holding this thing in for so long, and it was killing him. Mm -hmm. And, and, and once he is able to start talking about this thing, the unspoken, um, lots of things change in his life, uh, in a really significant way.
0: Yeah, I learned a lot. I mean, all of the patients are incredible. Each one of them has a completely different um, issue that you're t- dealing with, and they're all just the humanity on display, and the and the the uh, the care and empathy that comes through. It's just tremendous. It's a tremendous book. I mean, it's it's so it's moving. Every minute is incredibly moving. Whether you were talking about your own work, or you're talking about the patient, or you're talking about the history of psychology, or the history of therapy. Where you're talking about the problems that you're dealing with and your own therapist and getting to your own, um, you know, places—it's—it's—it's it's, it's incredible.
1: One of the one of the things that I really wanted to do with the book was, you know, there's a lot of humor in the book. It's very funny, and I think that I wanted to kind of capture the ridiculousness of the human condition, and I mean that, um, you know, in a compassionate way that that we're all ridiculous in certain ways. Like the things that we do and the ways that we behave and the ways that we sort of do everything we can to guarantee our own unhappiness yes. know, without realizing it. Um, you know, and I think that it's so much easier to see oneself through story, through other people's stories. It's very different if, if I were to take the reader and say, Hey, here's something that you do in your life and take a look at this. They'd say, no, I don't do that. That's not me. Yeah. Um, and they might get defensive. All of us do, but when you see a story and you see yourself in that person's behavior or actions, and then you say, oh, I'm kind of like that. <laughs> I do that sometimes, or I know someone who does that. Um, I think that it makes us feel less isolated. I think that it makes takes away the shame. I think that it makes us realize that we're all more the same than we are different. So the four main patients that I that I follow in the book, and I'm the fifth patient, the main four patients and I Are all really different from one another on the surface, you know, different ages, different genders, different problems, histories, psychological makeup, personalities. Um, And yet I think that the themes that we're all dealing with, the big life questions that we're all dealing with underneath our specific problems are so similar.
0: Yeah, it, it, that's it, that's yes. The the power of storytelling comes through so hard. I mean, at some point, I was like, you know, this is so well done. These people can't be real. You know, I had to look it up. I'm like, how you know is this? <laughs> I, I was like, are these real people? Because this is such a great. I mean, I was just so taken aback about at at how open you were about yourself and about these people's lives. And you even talk about it in the book that this is a dangerous territory for therapists because being seen by your patients can sometimes mean they'll leave because they kind of want to think of you as as this objective inhuman mega brain thing that's not uh, that doesn't have actual emotions. And uh, the fact that the entire book is like taking a complete 180 from that notion and saying, I'm going to let you see behind the scenes in my life and behind the scenes in these patients' lives, and we're going to go all the way to the bone with everybody. Uh, it just feels very that, I think, is the thing that has made it so sensational or so uh, I think that's that's what made it has made it such a big splash is that. And I, I this is the kind of book that I rarely pick up, but I could not stop as soon as I start as as soon as you admit in the very beginning, like about what was going on in your personal life. And that you're going to go see a therapist for it. I mean, it was incredible. I don't know. Just uh... it's,
1: it's interesting because I say at the beginning of the book that my, my greatest credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race. Mm-hmm. That we as therapists use our humanity in the room all the time. And that doesn't mean that we're disclosing anything about our personal lives in the therapy room. But it means that we know what it's like to be a person in the world. Nobody's immune from struggle. And so because we have lived life... We're better able to help other people live their lives. But nobody wants to hear about that part, right? Um, so I think what I'm doing in the book is I'm kind of um, you know, saying, look, it's really important that if I'm going to write about these, these four people that I'm writing about in the book, um, it felt almost fraudulent to leave out the fact that at that same time, I was seeing a therapist. And, and that, you know, so I could either present the book as I'm the expert up on high and people would get a lot out of that, out of that version of the book. But to know that, you know, I'm an, I'm a person in the world too. And, and here's, here's, here was my arc also. And I tell that story at the beginning of the book where a colleague of mine, she and her husband had been trying to get, um, to have a baby and she finally got pregnant after so much failure. And, Um, she got pregnant and she she was standing in a Starbucks when her OB called and said that the pregnancy wasn't viable. And she started crying in Starbucks and a patient happened to walk in and left, like made eye contact with her, left and never came back to therapy. And, you know, on the one hand, yeah, it's really jarring, I think, to see your therapist crying in a Starbucks and not knowing why. Um, But I also think that there's something human about that, and and so when I started writing my story, you know, I'm very open about my, you know, all of the mortifying moments of my own therapy. Um, but at the same time, I really thought like three people would read the book. So when I first turned it in, um, you know, I, I wasn't really, you know, I just kind of let it all rip. And then, um, you know, and then we started getting, um, you know, the response to the book. And now it's been on the list for almost four months and um, the New York Times list. And so You know, a lot of people are reading it. And and if I had known that so many people would read it, I might not have been that open. But I'm really glad that I that I was because I think that's precisely the reason that so many people are reading it because of that candor, because of that vulnerability and that honesty um, that wouldn't have been there if I'd kind of cleaned myself up. (laughs)
0: <laughs> There's a part in the book where you ask him, should I choose uh, this school for my son or the other? And he responds with, I think you'll benefit more from understanding why this decision is so hard for you. Um, <laughs> that made me uh, pause and take a second and go, that is such a th- thing for a therapist to say. And I think for me that if you hear it, it makes you take two steps back and go, oh yeah, that's actually, hmm, self-reflection's a thing. If you Just like jump into that sentence and tell me more about why that's a better way to approach a situation like that when you're talking with a therapist?
1: Well, at that point in the book, I'm talking about how when people come to therapy, often they want advice. And I have this word taped up in my office, ultra-crepidarianism, which is uh, roughly translated as the habit of giving advice or opinions outside of one's knowledge or expertise. (laughs) Um, You know, and I think we do that all the time. I think people come to us and they think that they think that we're withholding information for them, but I can't tell people what to do in their lives. I know what I would do and I can help them figure out what they want to do, but I can't tell them what to do because I'm not living their life. And so, you know, when I come to my therapist and I, and I ask him all these questions at one point, he says, why are you asking me something you can ask Siri? Um, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> I think that what, what we're really doing is we're saying, who am I to make the decisions about me in my life? How how can I trust myself? Um, and a lot of people feel like the therapist will give better advice to them than they would give to themselves. And what we want to do is we want to put ourselves as therapists. We want to put ourselves out of business. We have the worst business model ever, but our goal is to help you not to need us in that way. So we don't want to make decisions for you, partly because, as I said we won't make good decisions for you because we're not living your life. But the other part of it is, we want you to be able to be independent in that way, to be self-sufficient, to be able to navigate through life in a way where you will make some mistakes as everybody does, but where you you there's an there's a, a, a an inner compass that guides you in terms of your decision making.
0: And um, there's this other thing you say that I think is good as as by way of introduction, which is you, you say that uh insight is the booby prize of therapy. What does that mean and wh- and why is that an important phrase for you to use and think about in your own practice and everything?
1: So many people come to therapy thinking that they're going to learn something about themselves that they're going to gain some insight this is why i do that this is why i keep shooting myself in the foot this is why i keep ending up in the same place over and over in different situations this is my pattern this is why i am depressed i am anxious right so the insight Mm -hmm. um but the problem is In therapy, you have to be both vulnerable and accountable. So you have to be vulnerable enough to be able to glean the insight, to hear it, to not be defensive when you hear it. But you also have to be accountable, and that you have to make change. So if you just come in every week and you say, "Oh, now I know why I keep getting into that fight with my partner," (laughs) you know, or "I know now I know why I get so upset with my mother," well. That's fine, but then what are you doing when you leave my office? What are you doing to make changes when you leave? And if you just go back and you, you say, now I know why I get in this fight with my wife all the time or my husband all the time, um, and then you do the same thing in your marriage, you know, in the week in between, the insight is useless. Mm. So the insight will help to guide changes in behavior, but the insight alone won't help you at all.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, the last thing I want to ask before we get into like the, some of the nitty-gritty of it is um, you also mentioned something that a therapist relayed to you about a person shaking prison bars. Uh, I don't want to give it all away, so I'll just throw that at you and tell us a little bit more about this metaphor.
1: Well, I think that a lot of us come to therapy feeling trapped by something, you know, our circumstances, the people in our lives, um, you know, whatever's holding us back. And what my therapist was saying to me by way of this cartoon illustration was he was saying that we aren't as trapped as we think we are and that we actually, um, sometimes we get some kind of benefit from feeling trapped. And so he said, you know, you remind me, he said to me, you remind me of this cartoon of a prisoner shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, the bars are open. And it was such a revelation Mm. um, because all we have to do is walk around those bars most of the time. But most of us don't um, because we want the freedom. We want to get out of jail. But with freedom comes responsibility with freedom comes uncertainty. What's out there, at least with when you're in prison, shaking the bars, you know, you know what your hell is. Right. Mm-hmm. But but when you walk around those bars, you, you know, humans don't do well with uncertainty and you're walking into something that might be taking you outside of your comfort zone, might be taking you into an unknown chapter of your life. And that can feel very scary. So a lot of us would rather just stay in jail.
0: And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event, and The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a the therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy. For a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions, and you have a business. You have a business, and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite you should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. Twenty-five. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No. You get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program It's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing. Absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's NetSuite dot com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. We all deserve to be able to further our knowledge and keep learning. And that's what the Great Courses Plus is all about. I love the service. I tell you about it just about every episode. Look, I use this service. I have a giant queue of things that I'm going to learn about thanks to this service. They were founded on the idea that education should be accessible to everyone, and they make it possible to learn from the brightest minds out there, including professors from the best universities in the world, like Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and experts from places like National Geographic and the Smithsonian. This is college-level learning, but without the student loans or the grades. And with the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen to lectures at any time. I recommend checking out the Great Courses Plus' new course, their brand new course, Building Your Resilience, Finding Meaning in Adversity. From meditation to the consequences of chronic stress, this course offers great practical life skills we all need. In this course, you get 24 lectures. They're about 32 minutes long each. And you get things like the consequences of stress, mastering physical resilience. Practice one, building resilience. Practice two, de-stressing with your breath. Practice three, promoting sleep. And on and on it goes. You have things like the hero's journey, finding safety, understanding trauma. It is grand. So what's the offer this time? What is the offer to get you in on this service? They're offering my listeners an all-access trial for... Free when you sign up through my special URL. Look, seriously, getting this for free is bonkers. You need to go to thegreatcoursesplus.com smart. Just play around, find a couple of things you think are interesting, do the thing for free, and get smarter for nothing, and then see what you think. I think you're going to think great things because you'll be smarter and you can think things that were greater than before. That's all at thegreatcoursesplus. Dot com slash smart. One more time so it sticks in your neural network. That's TheGreatCoursesPlus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Let's return to our interview with author and psychotherapist, Lori Gottlieb. I want to talk about the trans-theoretical model of change before we want to have some time with you. Um, yeah. I think this is something that uh, is totally in line with the kind of things we usually talk about, and this is something that I we've spent uh, years here on the show talking about how people change their minds, and that phrase, change your mind, can mean so many different things. But uh, in the model of behavior change, There's this thing called the trans-theoretical model, and um, it has these very discrete stages that I think we could all um, identify in our own lives. I just want to go through them with you. The the stage one is pre-contemplation. What is it?
1: So that's when you don't even realize that you're thinking of changing. (laughs) Um, That that's that you know where you know something's not going right in your life, and sometimes you know somewhere deep down. You know that ultimately, you know, someday maybe you'll make a change, but you're not really that conscious of it. You know, and and I, I should just give some context to this is that I'm talking about this in the context of this patient who she keeps, she keeps like hooking up with the wrong guys and she's in this pattern of doing the same thing over and over and she can't get out of this loop even though she knows exactly what she needs to do to get out of this loop. And so, um, you know, I think like that, you know, the Nike sort of just do it slogan. um, (laughs) That's, that's, When people do that, it's because they've already gone through these other stages and they don't realize it. By the time they get to just do it, which we call the action stage in this trans-theoretical model of change, um, so much has gone on behind the scenes that they don't even know about. So some people think, oh, it's easy. You just make a decision and you change, like a New Year's resolution. Um, But you don't. So much has happened to prep you for that.
0: Yeah. And you, you talk about at this stage, people will even be combative if you call them out and send, tell them that they're, that they're in a con kind of contemplative state. Um, that, um, and you go further to say that like, this isn't like you're setting up the idea of how you have to go through these stages by saying that therapists aren't exactly persuaders. Um, you can't convince an anorexic to eat or convince an alcoholic, not to drink. It's more about bringing people to the place where they are looking at themselves and changing themselves um, you know, it's not changing the, the that whole concept of the change takes place in the other person's head and it's not a copy paste thing. If you could talk about that for just one second.
1: Yeah. It's about getting the other person ready to make a change so you can tell someone to change, but that won't do much. Um, you have to get them to a place where they've gone through this process in their own mind. Um, and so, you know, when people get really frustrated, like with, with the addict in the family or whatever, you know, like, why don't you just stop drinking? And they think it's like a chemical, uh, you know, a chemical issue that the person's addicted. And if they just, you know, do a detox program, it'll be fine. But there's a lot of, um, you know, the, the desire has to be there, the desire to change Yeah. and, and, and what that means, um, for that person So when you go through these stages of change, you know, you go from pre-contemplation to contemplation to preparation, where you're kind of planning what you're going to do, but you're not really ready to make the change. Like someone who's thinking, well, maybe I'll quit my job and and get a different job, or maybe I'll go to graduate school or, you know, whatever it is. Um, The preparation is sort of, you know, them kind of like going online and researching, but they're not ready to pull the trigger. They're not ready to like sign up for anything or quit their job or apply for another job or anything like that yet. They're just like researching a lot, but they, they're kind of like, yeah, but I'm not really going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's that, um, the person who's thinking about like quitting drinking, they might be like, yeah, you know, they're sort of looking into, you know, ways that they can get help or support or, programs they can, they can go to, but they're, they're like, no, I'm not really going to do that. I'm just curious. Um, so that's sort of, you know, preparation and then, and then preparation ultimately leads to action. And then once there's action, you you actually go, there's another stage. It's not just that you made the change, but it's called maintenance. And in maintenance, it's about maintaining that change. And that's, that's hard. Um, part of what, what people don't realize about change. And I write about this a lot in the book is that, even positive change is hard for people because with change comes loss, that we have to give up something that feels comfortable, familiar. We know the customs in that land that we've been in. Um, and we're going to even even when we're going to something good, we have to give up something that was familiar to us. Yeah. And that, that's really hard to do. I don't think people really understand how hard it is to give up something especially when people say well what you're giving up was awful or miserable or you know uninspiring and it was boring and you didn't like it um all of that is true and you know the devil you know
0: yeah i mean the it's you can't replace you know you can't knock out the table leg without putting another leg underneath like there's a it's it's like what model will we use to make sense of things if we don't use the model we currently have even though the model we currently have is sucks. (laughs) sucks.
1: <laughs> right. And, and at least, at least you know what you're getting in the model you have. At least you know what to expect, even if the expectations are quite low. Yeah. Um, at least, you know, what it is when you go into the new thing, it, what if it's worse? I mean, that's, always, you know, it could be worse or it could be harder or it could change your life in ways that maybe, you know, I think a lot of people are afraid of change just in general. Yeah. Like we, we are habits of, we are creatures of habit and um you know change requires a lot of actively doing something differently and that can be really hard and and it also depends on who's around you um you know sometimes when people around us change we try to get them not to change which people don't realize either that you know sometimes if you have a friend um who in your group of friends like say you guys go out drinking a lot at night and one of your friends says you know I'm going to start going to bed earlier and I'm going to mm-hmm. start maybe um being more responsible And your friends will start saying, ah, you're no fun anymore. Come on, come out with us. Um, And the reason is that if this friend is, is doing something a little more responsible and living a little bit in a healthier way, it forces the other people in the group to look at themselves in the mirror and say, Oh, there's this other thing that's now being held up to me. This other person is now a mirror for me. And I don't want to have to look at the fact that maybe I should be more responsible. So, yeah. um, you know, they try to bring them back in the fold in families that happens. Let's say that, um, You know, somebody in the family is now, um, you know, not going to be the problem anymore. Like they're going to stop, they're going to stop drinking or stop using drugs or, you know, whatever they're going to, whatever their problem, them being the problem in the family was now, now that that other person is being healthy, everybody else has to look at their contribution to the problems Mm -hmm. in the family. And so nobody wants to be, you know, everyone wants to be the sane one in the family. And if the other person was the problem, now that person's no longer the problem, uh uh-oh, who's going to be like the identified patient in the family?
0: (laughs) I totally understand what you're talking about there. Um, I've seen it a million times. I've seen it in my own friend group, especially uh, with people getting older and saying, okay, I'm going to straighten up. And everybody's like, oh, no, I have to too. Well, yeah. Um,
1: even, even I see that a lot with like a group of single people where one person says like, yeah, no, I really like this person. I'm going to be in a relationship with this person. And people are like, dude, <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> what are you doing? You're so young. You don't want to be like tied up like that. And, and, and it's because they, they will have to grow up too if their friend is growing up. Yeah.
0: In the, in the second stage of contemplation, um, you talk about that there's a lot of resistance there. I know you already mentioned something about that, but the, you talk about this is where people procrastinate and self-sabotage to stave off change, even though it's, it could be positive. Um, and We talked about all that, but something that, that really resonated with me was the idea that uh, this is maddening for friends and partners to witness when you see somebody in a hamster wheel, because that is so often what happens. Everyone else in your friend group, I, this has happened to me just recently, Like, but I've also been on the other side of it. Were you... Everyone sees you doing the loop and everyone knows that you are in it. And you are the, when you finally do escape it, you're like, why didn't anybody tell me? (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, if you could just talk about that, that phenomenon, which is so common.
1: So there's, there's this thing I write about, um, in the book, the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion and idiot compassion tends to be what our friends do most of the time, which is. Um, you know, say you go through a breakup and they're like, you dodged a bullet. The guy was awful, you know, whatever it was. Um, even though that's happened to you 10 other times, you know, so clearly you're the common denominator in this, um, or, you know, something happens at work and you're like, oh my God, my boss is like this. And, and even though your friends see that that keeps happening to you, they'll say, yeah, that person is, you know, that's so, that person's so difficult. Um, so that's idiot compassion. It makes you feel really good in the moment, but it doesn't help you to see something a larger view of what's going on with you and, and your relationships. Um, Wise compassion is when somebody says, Hey, I've noticed this keeps happening. And what do you think is going on here? Now, if your friends say that to you um, often the person will get really defensive. A therapist can do it in a different way. Friends. The the reason that it doesn't really work that well with friends is partly because people feel really criticized and judged and ashamed when their friends bring it up. Um, And partly because they feel like their friends have an agenda. You want me to get better so your life is easier, you know, because then it'll be easier for you to be around me. With a therapist, you know, we don't have to be around them um, 24-7. We're around them in the therapy room. So we don't have that agenda. Our agenda is to help them to navigate through life more smoothly. Um, And so I think that, you know, when people say, why didn't you tell me this earlier? People tried to, (laughs) you know. (laughs) People people try to, but it's very hard to hear. So I'm sure lots of people tried to. And what happened was they got a lot of pushback. So they resorted to idiot compassion, which was just kind of like listening to you and saying, yeah, that's really hard or, or not listening to you and changing the subject um, because they were kind of tired of talking about it with you because they weren't getting through.
0: I totally could see that. And you, you'll find yourself in that situation withholding information from people in your uh, social group because some part of you knows that they will call you out or they will, that they will say, now see, this is an example of the thing. Like, so you uh, find yourself creating a, uh, a a narrative that you know is fictional, a character that you know is fictional in this situation to avoid the good advice that will probably come across the table. I've noticed. <laughs> it's very- yeah.
1: Well, I think, I think we feel a lot of shame around the, the, observations that people make because they they hold some truth and we feel so much shame around that truth. Like, Oh, maybe I really do do that, but that's really mortifying. So I'm going to tell them, no, 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 this isn't what happened. Let me repeat the story and tell you why it was not my fault. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, and then people kind of give up, but, but I think it really does come down to shame that we feel so exposed. We feel so naked when somebody says, Here's something about you that I notice, and we're not proud of that thing. We we often want to say no, that's not me.
0: I see myself doing this with other people too, and thanks to the your book, I'm more aware of. I'll be I'll try to be better at not being a uh, somebody with idiot compassion. Um, <laughs> well, I
1: hope that I hope that what people get out of the book is that they can see. Um, something about themselves; they can see aspects of themselves in in all of the people that I'm writing about because I think that it will help them to see those things that maybe if their friends pointed it out, you know, they might not be as open to.
0: Yeah, well, you did, and it, it's it's incredible. Um, the and just as a book person, as a person who's written a couple books and has, has a third one in the in the publishing pipeline, like the structure of this thing is so gorgeous. Like just just the formatting and structure and the and the the lattice that you created to put all of the narratives together and the arcs and there's like 17 arcs all intertwined. It's really incredible. You deserve all of the attention that you're getting.
1: Um, Thank you. I really appreciate that.
0: Like functionally, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, um, last question. So we can say something nice before we go. Um, people, anyone listening to this, who's like, you know what? Okay. I'm, I'm at the stage, whichever stage it was that they said is the one where people end up in therapy. (laughs) um they finally go okay I'm going to give it a go what's the best way for a person to you know who has no idea has no one in their in their social uh group who uh either can help them or they are they are not willing to go into their social group and talk about it which you mentioned in the book how should in our modern era what's the best way for a person who's interested in finding a therapist going about doing that
1: yeah. Well, first of all, therapy is such a rich human interaction. And and study after study shows that the most important factor in the success of your therapy is the relationship you have with your therapist. It matters more than the person's training, their years of experience, the modality that they use. Mm. All of that, of course, is important, but it doesn't matter. Those things don't matter as much as whether you and your therapist really click. Mm. And, so, and so I think it's really important that you know, if if you don't know anybody who has a good therapist who can recommend one, look on, you know, look online. And usually therapists will have something about how they work or who they are or what their background is. See what resonates with you. And then go in for a consultation and know that the first session is simply a consultation. You aren't signing up to go to therapy. You're just going in and saying, how do I feel when I'm talking to this person. Do I feel understood? Um, is this person easy to talk to? Do they get me? Um, and if they do, I would go back for a second session. And you just take it like that. It's not It's not like I'm in therapy. It's It's just, I'm going to go and see how this relationship develops. And if I'm learning something about myself and getting something out of it, and, and, and then it's helping me to make changes in my life, tangible changes that I can see. And that's that's what the therapy experience really is.
0: That's beautiful. It's wonderful. Look, uh, I, th- I thank you so much uh, uh, for coming on the show and talking about this and for writing this book. And personally, I thank you very much for doing this work. And uh, I hope you have already, I know you're already successful, but this is really a powerful and important work. And I'm very happy that you produced it and I'm going to promote it. And I really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure talking with you.
0: That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about on this episode, go to you are not so smart.com. There you'll find links to the previous episodes, show notes for all the shows, transcripts, all sorts of things. The uh, the book that we talked about this episode, again, it is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. You can get that anywhere that they sell books. You can find my books. Oh my God, that's right. I have books and I never really say that on the show, but you can also find You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb anywhere they sell books. So yeah, we have something called a Facebook page. That is Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. Twitter is Not Smart Blog, at Not I am at David McRaney. If you'd like to pitch in and help the show out, you can go to Patreon, pitching in at any amount. We'll get you the show with no advertising, but if you pitch in at higher amounts, you can get t-shirts and signed books and all sorts of other crazy things. Go to patreon.com slash smart to learn more. There's also a YouTube channel. Uh, you can listen to previous episodes of the podcast there. You can also watch the live show in New York in its entirety over there at YouTube. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The interstitial music is by Incompetech. And this music is by Banjo Pocalypse.